Welcome back to Don't Open This Podcast. Happy New Year to everyone. This will be our first episode of 2024, and uh, we're back with a very interesting episode. I think people are going to latch on to this one. I'm your host, Mike, joined as always by my best friend and co-host, Tim. Episode 46. We're calling it Pitch It or Ditch It. Kind of a weird title, but what we're doing is pitching ideas for sequels to films that do not have sequels, but Tim and I think they're deserving of one. Is that a good way to sum this up? Yeah, I would agree. The ditch it part is a little odd because we had some ideas for sequels or we threw around some titles that we ended up ditching where we were like, yeah, what do you do with a Friday the 13th sequel to like the remake? It gets a little a little not very exciting. So we kind of ditched things on our own and tried to put together a selection of films that were screaming for a sequel. I guess the ditch it part could be maybe after you guys listen to the episode, feel free to comment on it and let us know which pitches we made you love and maybe which pitches we made you think should be ditched. I guess that's the best way to sum that up, right, Tim? Yeah, we're going to need some help here of letting us know either which ones we should pitch out or which ones you guys enjoy, or maybe even what ones do you guys think you have a take on, whether it's the movies we're going to talk about today or maybe some other ones that come to mind for you. I mean, if people like this episode, the next one could be comprised almost solely of requests from people, you know, sending in movies they would like us to kind of spitball the idea for a sequel to. So that'll be fun. Considering it's sort of a strange uh, topic, I, I think, you know, Tim and I talked about this off the air, and I think the way we're going to do this is we're going to tell you guys uh, the titles of every movie right in the beginning, which is not something we normally do. But we're going to do that because we're not intending to spoil every single aspect of each of these films, but in some cases it's going to be really hard to build on for a sequel if we don't reference the ending of the original film. So you will get... The titles of every movie first, then we'll go into each film and give a very brief synopsis on the movie itself, and then kind of dive in to our our sequel pitches. And the other thing that's going to be pretty interesting is I feel like I had a few inherent cool ideas for certain films on this list, and Tim had some as well, but they're different movies. So... Tim might be really excited to talk about a sequel to a certain film that I didn't really have much of an idea for. So you're going to get 
in some cases, double pitches, and in other cases, one of us sort of riding on the coattails of the lead guy's pitch. So we'll be kind of building out that idea and maybe coming up with something really cool. I think the first thing we need to cover, Tim, is a couple of movies we wanted to talk about, but then we found out in our little bits of internet research that they're getting sequels, <laughs> so they're off the list. Which, I mean, I guess is fortuitous, is we're going to pitch a sequel. Oh, they're making a sequel? That's fine, then. We'll just watch it. Yeah, exactly. But one of them's 28, well, the sequel to 28 Weeks Later, which is also a sequel to 28 Days Later. I think it's safe to assume, Tim, that they're going to call it 28 Years Later. Yeah. That's which, the guess. Yeah, it had been getting some talk for a while now, but I know when I brought it up to put it on this episode, because I said, oh, it's, they talked about it for a while and nothing ever came of it and it just kind of gotten shelved. And then you texted me like a day ago and said, looks like news sites all of a sudden started picking back up again that there's been movement on 28 Years Later. So yeah. off the list. And Tim and I are fans of both films. I, I think 28 Weeks Later is one of those rare sequels that is different, but equally good to the first one. I, I like yeah. both of those movies. I, I think it's the the change that you get from something like Alien to Aliens of you have a more thriller-esque of maybe a slightly slower-paced first movie, and then the second one is the one that starts incorporating more action elements or a little bit more um, fast-paced thrills to it. Sure. And oftentimes you get a, a Stranger Things scenario where, you know, some of these films were the, the little engine that could and they were made with not a lot of money. And if it became a surprise hit, suddenly studios are throwing, you know, five times the budget at the creators to make a sequel. So the sequel could be bigger and better. I know another one that was on our list was It Follows. And of course, uh, any hardcore horror fans know that they announced They Follow. So that took that off the list. And I'm excited for that. Tim, are there any others that you that you can think of off the top of your head or no? Or was that the only uh, I know that the there had been talk for ages on the third in a trilogy of uh, The Collector, The Collection, and I think it was supposed to be The Collected, but I guess that's been falling through for years. So that one still gets buzz every now and then, but I think that one may be dead dead, but we'll see where that ends up. Sure. And there's a few others that people might be expecting us to talk about that we're kind of holding off, uh, you know, for a second episode of this. And I will tell everyone that Big Trouble in Little China is not going to be in this episode, but we could do an entire episode on what the sequels could be because Tim and I both oh, love yeah. that film and wish that there was a sequel. Uh, that's been in development hell for 25 years. So what ones are we covering? To the best of my knowledge, we're going to cover... The Blob, the Chuck Russell remake. We'll cover Brightburn. And Overlord. We'll do Planet Terror. John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. And Life, the film. And then I think we'll tie it all up in a bow with the autopsy of Jane Doe. So yeah, I think as Mike said, the inherently because of the nature of this episode, to say where we're going to go into a sequel, we're going to be getting into where it leaves off that kind of leaves that room for the sequel. So if you haven't seen all of these and you care about seeing them, definitely maybe skip over that section, go check it out and come back. But otherwise, if you say, I didn't watch Brightburn when it was around, I'm not going to watch Brightburn, then great. You can continue listening to the rest yeah. of this episode. Because <laughs> we're really not going to hit every plot point. I just feel like, you know, some people don't want the ending spoiled. Yeah. Um, 
So that's the list. If you feel brave and you want to listen to the ones you know and try to like skip over the one you didn't watch yet, go for it. If not, watch a couple of those movies and come back. But we are going to open with The Blob because it's a movie we both love. That is from 1988, directed by Chuck Russell. A generation ago, a classic changed the shape of terror. It's had 30 years to grow bigger, meaner, and faster. Now, through the terrifying vision of the director of Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Blob is back. And I do think Tim and I have covered this movie at length uh, several times because we just love talking about it. What's your take on The Blob? If you just had to pitch The Blob, the, the remake to somebody, what would you say? Oh, as a whole? I think it ends up having all of the fun that you think of 80s horror distilled down into a great goopy mess. It's great effects. It's great characters. It's great lines. You get to laugh along with it while also being completely grossed out by some of the things that happen. And it is a rare remake that has its heart in the right place, but it also has some really talented people at the helm. And I think a lot of times we could watch remakes, Tim, and even if the heart's in the right place, I mean, that means they they make it with love, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right group of talented people that all come together at the right time, and you could still get a mess of a remake. But The Blob somehow carries over all the charm and all the sort of naive innocence and, like, the teen's triumphing over like the man so to speak you know in town that's trying to hold them back it carries over all that great stuff from the 50s but um here's that spoiler territory we're talking about it folds one major plot line change into the film that i think elevates it above the original blob and that is it it makes the blob not just some random alien being that lands on Earth. It's actually a government germ that was sent into space with the intent of mutating it to then use it against other countries in germ warfare. But it wasn't just a fucking crash land in a small town. And when it does, it just wreaks havoc. So that's where it kind of goes in its own direction. And We've championed the practical effects work from from Tony Gardner's Alterian Studios and all the wonderful performances by this great group of character actors. It's just a great film. And I know that we both have pitches for what we would love to see as a sequel. Tim, do you want to tell them the ending shots so that they can be on the same page with us? So kind of the the very... The Del Close moment. Yeah, the very end of all of this uh, ultimately ends up being a character who is the, the town priest is now out in the middle of the countryside having kind of a tent church out in the middle of nowhere in the Little small revival town. church. Yeah. yeah, and in his room he has a small jar where he keeps the one piece of the blob that still remains uh, that wasn't with the rest of it, and it's, it's still alive. It's just a alive. tiny little blob, a little, tiny little blob in a mason jar. That's all, all that's left. But yeah, he's been burned in an attempt to escape from being killed, and it kind of shows you that he starts out his character arc. He is like a good guy, but by the end of this film and all the havoc that he's gone through, you could tell 
that he's like off his rocker now. Like you just tell that he's waiting for the right time. I think it's a wonderful ending. It like sticks with you. It's such a great doomsday, you know, a harbinger of things to come. So Tim, I feel like we do share a lot of the same likes. So both of our pitches are probably going to springboard off of that ending is my guess. Oh yeah. Um, I am hot to hear yours. So why don't, why don't you pitch me how you would sequelize Chuck Russell's blob? So I was thinking along the lines of we have Del Close's character, Reverend Meeker, who has in possession this one piece of the blob, who after encountering the blob and after dealing with the blob, treats the blob as the the wrath of God upon man for their misdoings in life. So he decides he's going to uh, start feeding the blob the sinners that he finds uh, from the town, kind of a la like the the pit of the the kid dropping things into these creatures. So he's going to be building the blob back up by feeding them the sinners from the church, from his uh, congregation. And it's going to slowly start to build into this kind of religious cult around the blob itself. Wormwood falls from heaven, consuming sinner and saint alike. Who shall be lifted up to rapture when the judgment trump blows? None but the faithful brothers and sisters. None but the faithful. Dude, that's an awesome. I, for for any listeners wondering, Tim and I are going in blind on these. We didn't share with each other where we were going. I never thought of that angle to where like they're containing this blob that's getting bigger and bigger and sacrificing the yeah. sinners. Like that's can, a really Can you imagine just a poster, a one sheet that's just cult of the blob? Oh. No, it's so good. That's a great that's a great idea. Um <laughs> We'll we'll probably jump back and forth, you know, like after we both make our pitches, we might oh yeah we, we, yeah weigh in on some things. Mine, you know, starts the same way. You basically have you know re- the Reverend Meeker's parish, and what I would envision is over time that parish got totally wakeoed, and you had one like super Jesus freak like believer, uh, one member who managed to hightail it out of there and survive with that little jar. And he wants to keep Meeker's vision and his doomsday, what would the word be? His sermons. He wants to to remain true to all that. Yeah. So you got this guy that's just been waiting for what his warped mind tells him is the right time. And I kind of envisioned that he would wait for one of the hottest days on record because they establish in the blob that like cold is how you can beat it. So if he unleashed this on one of the hottest days in record, it would make it that much harder for people to utilize cold in any fashion. Yeah. Um, so he waits for a massively populated thing to occur in my brain. It's either something like a Taylor Swift concert or some, you know, massive political gathering, you know, some kind of million man March vibe. And he wants to let this thing out on a hot day in such a densely populated area that the blob is just going to get such a jump start before anybody could come and stop yeah. anything. And the way I see this, Tim, is you get an opener that seems like a climax where it's this blob with modern technology, but still done with a bunch of prosthetic stuff for close ups. This blob just 
just washing over all these people and absorbing them and getting bigger and bigger. And then a helicopter just comes in and starts landing in some high area. They're up on a skyscraper and stepping out of the helicopter is RJ McCready and Childs modern day. They're Kurt. It's Keith David and, and Kurt Russell. They're, they're older. It's 2023. And basically the blob takes place in the same universe as John Carpenter's the thing. And because McCready and Childs, completely survived an alien menace they were ushered in by the government to lead up a special task force for dealing with any of these sort of biological and alien threats and since in the the 88 blob they established that the blob was created by the government as a germ warfare it would make sense that they would know that there was this breach and the situation that happened in 88 so they would kind of be keeping tabs for anything that felt blob-like to be occurring. Yeah. Um, so now you could let your laughter go if, if you were holding in a laugh. Um, I mean, it, it feels like kind of um, Gary Busey in Predator 2. Sure. Of having the, the task force that's specifically going after all, of the, which I guess originally in Predator 2 was supposed to be Arnold's character. And then they're like, oh, never yeah. mind. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it would be interesting to have them being as like, not government men, but like contractors. Yeah. I guess. Well, obviously <laughs> they would go rogue. I mean, I'm just throwing this shit out here. Yeah. Like I, I really want to see Childs and, and McCready together again. And I, I was when I was thinking about what sequel could if I went to go see the blob sequel, which by the way, I, I pen name it uh The Days of Wrath and Reckoning is what I think would be a great title for it. Um but I go see this movie, I would like them to hide, ideally, hide that it's even a blob movie. Just just get me to go see this movie that I think is going to be a big disaster film. I go see this film and 20 minutes in, I'm treated to realizing it's a blob sequel. I would be pleased as punch. And then if leading into the third act, you had McCready and Childs step into the fold, I might have like a slight heart attack in a theater if I got all that in one movie. So that's my silly pitch for the blob sequel. I would be interested, like when you brought up the whole thing of releasing it on the hottest day on record or like releasing on there. I'd be interested to see if they had ported the blob or what remains of the blob down to like South America, where it's like there will not be a winter setting or oh, like shit, yeah. cold availability. I mean, that's the problem sometimes with sequels is if they establish the weaknesses and the strengths of something, the threat in the first film, you have to somehow come up with a new way to play off those things yeah. that doesn't feel like, Oh, you're just rehashing what you did already. That's yeah. where my thoughts came in with the hottest day of the year or, or a hot day and you moving it to an extremely hot climate just ups the ante of what the fuck, like how would you handle that? Yeah. Where it's a day where it's like, they don't even have cooling technology because it's resulting in brownouts in the city because right. just, it's so hot. All of the power is just kicking every so often. So, and really, how do you deal with this thing once it gets bigger than big? You know, once the blob is a massive thing, like, how do you handle something like that? Yeah, where it's, like, not rolling over individual people. It's, like, rolling over buildings. Did you have a working title for your blob sequel or no? Cult of the Blob. Oh, yeah, you just said it, Cult of the Blob. So <laughs> so that's our take, I think, on on a blob sequel, which trails us right into a film 
that I have long thought was a victim of, of like audience confusion and, and maybe I wouldn't say faulty marketing, but like an unsure marketing campaign. Yeah. And what film's that, Tim? So this is 2019's Brightburn. He's not here. No, 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 you To save the world. No, no, no. No one knows how special I am, but someday the whole world will burn. Brightburn, rated R in theaters Memorial Day. I think it ended up having the misfortune of, I wouldn't even say that it was superhero fatigue at this point because 2019 we were still in the the throes of major marveldom before people started getting tired um i think it's just people didn't really want to see what would an evil superman look like at this point um they hadn't really gotten into i guess the boys um or any of the the other similar veins but anybody unfamiliar, it's pretty much the Superman story. This child, Brandon, who ends up being found by this young family out in the kind of countryside, and they're raising him to be a good person. But unlike Superman, he starts having these kind of slow things that build in of, well, maybe he reacts a little violently, or maybe he starts having some other issues or behavioral problems, and now his... Uh, spaceship or his like technology is speaking to him and kind of convincing him of uh, that he doesn't belong here and he needs to take care of these things and he should be leading this planet so where it ultimately ends up is him trying to be taken down because of him going rogue and it turns into this kind of superhero slasher movie and unfortunately, he is unable to be killed. He ends up going on to, in the, the credits, we see he is tearing through the world and now he's a big problem. But then they start showing news broadcasts of like this other creature coming out of the water and attacking people and all of these other kind of very evil Justice League type things uh, occurring throughout Earth. And we never get anything else after that point. Yeah. Like no. I sequel. think um, isn't Michael Rooker the radio announcer or the newscast? I think announcer? so. I think he's the voice that you're hearing. But Tim's right. It ends on such a oh, I want, I want like the next hour and a half, and you don't get yeah. it. And that's what I meant about audience confusion. There are several times I put this on for clients, and when I'm kind of just telling them a little tiny bit about the movie, it'll like ring a bell with them, and they'll say to me like. Oh, oh, that's that like DC's evil Superman thing. And I, and I have to say like, well, no, that's the weird thing. Like it, it isn't like it's not people are thinking. I, I think a lot of people assumed it would be just a superhero movie, but it's really more of a horror movie. It just I don't I don't even know why it pulls so much from the Superman mythos. That was something that I found a little interesting and also perplexing just because if you're crafting all this stuff and you don't make so many parallels to Superman, it would be seen completely as its own thing. But when you pull in all these very specific, comfortable Superman elements, it does make for an interesting, like, bizarro alternate reality to the yeah. DC universe. But since it's not really a DCU movie... I think it does confuse a lot of audiences. It It's one of those movies that exists in these different planes of filmmaking where people that don't want gore and don't want like sinister 
you know, cold hearted actions. There, there is that one murder scene, Tim, with the, uh, the truck. It, it's yeah. really fucking disturbing. And I, I love the film for so many reasons. I do just think it, it made some creative choices that might have been a detriment to it in the long run, because I, I don't really know too many people that champion it, but we both like it a lot. So yeah. Do you have a sequel pitch for this thing? Yeah, I would like it in all of these things where we have like the idea of a superhero, it seems like any sort of comics or any movies or any shows where it's, oh, we have to defeat an evil superhero. It ultimately ends up turning into, well, we have to give one of our guys powers to fight that one and take them down. I would love for once to see them have to like form this world task force of all of these things are popping up. Let's put together all of our like minds and just humans with no actual like superhuman abilities. It's just the power of like human brains figuring out how can we kill a superhero who is throwing cars and flying through the air. It's, it's essentially what if Godzilla could think it's we right, have to put right, all right. of our minds together and stop this guy. And it would just be interesting of treating it as this like popping around to all of the world governments and like these UN meetings, like behind closed doors and things like that. And these yeah. shadowy organizations and you're putting together like your top soldiers from all these different things to form like the world committee. Um, I think the, the boys, the Amazon show based on the comics, I think they ran with that mindset more yeah. because you have like, Frenchie and Butcher and and Huey trying to come up with a way to kill Translucent, who has like impervious skin. Yeah. And they come up with a way to put an ass bomb in him, you know, and, and blow him up from the inside. You're right. It does. It has like a Godzilla vibe, too, of like, how how do we it's like Lord of the Rings, too, of how how does the small, you know, topple the big yeah. kind of thing? Well, I um, mean, even like you said, with the boys, it starts like that and then it immediately goes into well, there's no way we could actually have them fight the rest of these guys. So yeah. we need to introduce them all getting powers too, or something. Yeah, Butcher starts taking yeah. The, the, yeah, the dose. So like, I that. would just be interested to see what they can come up with as far as taking down like Brandon in this case, or any of the other creatures that they present. And it could even either be a, you don't even need to do it necessarily as a sequel movie. Do it as a sequel, like limited series type thing right. and have them taking down and hunting all of these various things that popped up in the credits of the last movie. It would be cool if Brightburn got brought in. I mean, it did well enough. Yeah. I don't know if, if like we've talked about how studios don't really want to back anything now that can't become like a, a, a predetermined IP, you know, like universe yeah. thing. But with Brightburn, I'm not too familiar with David Yorovesky, who directed it, but I'm pretty damn sure that like James Gunn and his brother wrote it. I think that's so, the background. Yeah, I to think that. the brothers wrote it. James direct, or uh, sorry, produced. Okay, so it's got a lot of the Gunn family influence, and I'm pretty sure David's like a good friend of theirs or something because they didn't make it for a lot of money. Like comparatively, it was a pretty low budget movie. But it is a solid one. Anyone that hasn't seen Brightburn, you should definitely go check it out. And I think Tim's idea for a sequel would be really cool. I, I'd be totally down to watch a Brightburn sequel. Yeah. And then they use the Oxygen Destroyer at the end of the movie. Um, oh, wrong one. Never mind. <laughs> so, Mike, did you have a, a pitch for that one? Or I know you had a pitch for the next no, one. No, because like I said, it, it was um, I, you, you were excited when... 
because you brought up Brightburn and I had a really long list. There's like 30 movies that I'd love to see sequels to. But one of the first ones you mentioned was Brightburn. So I assumed you had something cool to, to riff on and you did. The next one, because we did mention them all in the beginning, but Overlord is what we're going to talk about now. What happens to those people you take in that church? They have been given a purpose. And we are going to do a wartime horror episode because there are some really cool war-based horror movies. So we really are just going to touch on the setup to this movie and then kind of run with a sequel idea. But it's from 2018. I feel like not enough people saw this movie. And it was directed by Julius Avery. I'm not sure if you know of any of his stuff other than the most recent thing he did was Pope's exorcist. Yeah. I think that's um, mainly the, <laughs> the other one, <laughs> but this movie, I, it was one of the few movies I remember going to see in the theater in 2018 that kind of knocked my socks off just cause I didn't really have much of a grasp on what I was going to see. And it's one of those great films that blends reality with uh, like a supernatural or a heightened reality. And it it creates an interesting vibe. And it's June 1944. It's set in France uh, on the eve of D-Day. And it takes the real concept of American paratroopers. And they're they're trying to, they're, they're like roughnecks, you know? And they're being sent on this crazy mission where they're dropping into France and they have to destroy a radio tower. And that feels incredibly real And then they take the idea of the Nazis being obsessed with genetic modification and all those fucked up real tests that they did to people and and how hardcore some of their their higher rank guys were into the occult. It takes that concept and just says, what if they succeeded? What if they were making crazed super soldier Nazis? You're taking the idea of Captain America and making it evil as fuck. And that is like the setup to the film. Um, We could have a whole themed episode of Nazis creating super soldiers. Yeah, we could. Um, And we'll go into the details more. I just want to mention a standout sequence to me is when there's a plane that gets shot down and the way they film this plane and the battle and then the, um, the soldiers jumping out of the plane I thought it was awesome. Like it was one of the, I can't think of a sequence that unique looking in a lower budget, like horror action movie. It was just a really great setting of the tone for what I was going to see. And you get a really great cast. Kurt Russell's son, Wyatt Russell plays the lead. And I think he does a really good job. What are, what are your thoughts on overlord? Did you like it? Yeah, I liked overlord. I think overlord is one that doesn't get talked about enough where I hear it come up from time to time, but for the most part, I think it kind of came and went and a lot of people forgot about it. But horror ends up having not a lot of options. If you're looking for like horror comedies, they have you. Like horror drama, like it's, yep, they have those out there, like hereditary. Horror action is 
one that I think doesn't have a lot of really great examples for the most part. I mean, like to an extent you can say aliens, but then if you want to argue, well, it's more like sci-fi action horror, but Overlord, I think it is a really good one of being a solid action movie while being a solid horror movie together. Yeah. And it's not a zombie movie. And that's where I think what you saw from the trailers that were put out there, I think it looked like a zombie film, but it really is a super soldier movie. But it's a straight up horror movie as well. It's like a really nice balance between the two. It, it has like more in common with Project Wolf Hunting than it does mm-hmm. with like any zombie film. Tim, you think we, we could throw that in our in our Horrors of War episode? Yeah, we absolutely can. We really should talk about it. I want to rewatch it. So. so my pitch for a sequel is very simple. I would like to just see them take Overlord and essentially do an X-Files meets Overlord kind of vibe. And if you just have the reality of our government dealing with various paranormal or man-made situations, the way they deal with this is by sending out a crack team of soldiers that are all specialists in different ways, dub them the overlords. That's like their, that's their group and a story. And the movies would just be these really exciting, different films where you never know who's going to survive because they could replace people as often as they need to. So you might have one mission, one film as a mission where they go out and a few guys come back and you get to see them in the next movie. Or you might have a movie like Overlords, the third or fourth one, where everyone dies in order to succeed at the mission. And then your next Overlord movie is a whole new group of people. And I think if they keep the tone of the first film, they could fold in a major real world historical conflict and then amp that up with whatever the paranormal or horror based thing is. So for instance, you could, what, what if someone figured out a way to like control spontaneous combustion? Like if, if that was the setup, you then could have like each film would be called overlords with a subtitle. So you could have like overlords cambodia 76 and that would be this story about like spontaneous combustion being used and they're trying to thwart it before it gets out of that region and then a sequel could be called like overlords milan 93 i just picture the way they marketed the film with that propaganda art yeah if you labeled it in this way where it was like overlords and then like a mission name for each film, it would be fucking fun. It would be this like, cool, like alternate horror history thing. Right. Kind of like, like when you watch the beginning of Hellboy or something like that. Of, Without a doubt. Oh, that's hey, what I'm here's saying. like the storming of this, but also this is what really went on behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be cool because you have all of these real life things to pull from. Even if you want to do directly after this one, maybe it's them their first mission is storming down into Brazil, hunting down the stragglers exactly. of all of the ones in post-World War II. But yeah, like it's all of the, hey, what if we take all of these historic things and do the horror take that's happening behind the scenes on them that you never heard about because these guys took care of it? Did you ever check out the Terror AMC? I like the Terror very much. Yeah, the Terror was great. And that plays in the same like alternate history kind of vibe. Yeah. And Again, not to beat a dead horse, but like with Overlord, you could do something, you could go as like as far back as you want in terms of where the creation of the group started, you know, and then from that point, you could go forward to the point where you could do an Overlord like 2249 
there's nothing that would keep yeah. you from being able to do a future, like a film set in the future with this same group. And I just, I think that, I don't know. I don't get why there's so much to mine in that realm. And it had such a presence and such an identity for an early film by somebody. It, I don't know. I, I, I wish more people would get on that. Like yeah. if you guys can find this movie and watch it, show it to some of your friends. I, I think it'll resonate with a lot more people than it is at the moment. I think it, there's too much of an obsession with having like these record breaking things that even if you do well, it's considered a failure. So exactly. it's, it, it's not enough that it's, oh, we did double our budget or we did triple our budget. It's if we're not showing up on the top hundred list in the past decade, then it's a failure. Drop it. Move on to the next thing from there. Yeah. Um, and I think because it, technically speaking, like the Marvels really isn't a failure. It's just not as much of a gangbusters blockbuster as like Infinity War. Yeah. But it's still made money. That's what I don't get about the way like studios, people always complain that they don't make them like they used to. And it really is because they used to make a movie and without the expectation of it being the biggest blockbuster ever unleashed on the public. Like you can't go into things like that. Certain stories just don't warrant that sort of um, hyperbolic expectation, you know, of the film. Yeah. So that's, I don't know. That's my take on overlord. Like, do you have any wrinkles to throw into that or you want to move on to the next one? I mean, I, I would 100% be on board with that, that at some point you can have the the Overlord movie where you find out that some of the crew from there is actually remaining uh, Nazis from the, the first movie that are sure. uh, side agents. Kind of like a, an Overlord Boys from Brazil vibe yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, that would be cool. A quick disclaimer, too. If any uh, savvy producers take any of our ideas and make sequels out of them, all we really require is story credit on screen and maybe a bunch of swag, like throw us some t-shirts and yeah. things like that. We don't need money. Or just put, but, don't um, open this podcast link on the one sheet. That would be wonderful. That's all we're <laughs> asking for. So, which takes us to quite an interesting portion of a double feature, Tim. And what film is that? This would be 2007's Planet Terror. You want the story? I'll spin it for you quick. From directors Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez comes an outrageous double feature with unpredictable villains. Do I frighten you? Is it my scar? It's your car. And unstoppable heroes. Made you something. On April 6th, prepare to be blown away. Only at the Grindhouse. Released in theaters, combined with Quentin Tarantino's wonderful movie, Death Proof. And that was the Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino uh, throwback double feature, Grindhouse. So I think people that are big fans, they probably both, they all know about, you could get Grindhouse on like home video in various forms. And one of them is the Grindhouse double feature where you get both theatrical cuts of both films and all of the really fun fake trailers in between. But they also released extended single edition cuts of each film. And truthfully, if you love Planet Terror, you should watch the extended cut because there's cooler extra shit in it. And the same goes for Death Proof. But then it's also really fun to watch them together in the shorter versions. So we're just sort of talking about planet terror in general, like it, just as a, as a film. 
What's the film about, Tim? Oh, so the... It's about a lot of things, Jim. Yeah, I mean, I think the long and short of it is it's kind of these, not really necessarily, I would say, zombie-esque, but it's these... They're like chemical chemical, Yeah, it's like chemical zombies of these kind of like gross, goopy chemical creatures um, that result from this uh, toxin that ends up turning army base and then you end up with the the town that gets overrun and it starts small and you start having like things go on at the hospital Um, but we have this like motley crew of characters that we're introduced to throughout this um, namely Cherry played by Rose Rose McGowan McGowan. and then you got Freddy Rodriguez who's pretty amusing I love Freddy Rodriguez as Ray he's really good in it i mean you have so many people in this you have marley shelton you have josh brillen jeff Faye, michael bean bruce willis um it's so many people in this movie yeah then weird people pop up like fergie for a hot minute and yeah. uh of course danny trejo's in it and uh savini tom savini pops up it's a free-for-all it's rodriguez firing on all cylinders i think it's way over the top and it's gonna rub some people the wrong way if you don't get the vibe, you're never going to get the vibe. But if you just let it wash over you, I, I think Planet Terror is a really fun movie. Yeah. I think seeing it the second time, I appreciated it a lot more of just enjoying all of the the wackiness of it, of this isn't a 2007 movie. This is what if Robert Rodriguez made a 1970s movie with right. a 2007 cast? With his own kid in a scene, it still it cracks me up every time I see it. He's playing with a couple of action figures, this little kid, and he's like, Gonna eat your brains and gain your knowledge. And then later on, the kid accidentally shoots himself in the head. Apparently, Rodriguez's wife was really pissed about that. She's like, you're going to put our kid in a movie and have him die? Like, come on. Um, but it's crazy. Like, Rose McGowan gets her leg ripped off and and they put like an AK-47 with a fucking modified grenade launcher, rocket launcher on her leg. It just makes no sense. But if you accept it all, it's there. So so where did this movie leave off, Mike? It leaves off with um, the, the main part of the movie is this whole uh, DC-2 gas. And that's this gas that, that turns people into these raving like mutated slimy zombies and you got Bruce Willis and a whole bunch of military people that are hooked on it, but they're able to like ingest it in small doses. And it like keeps them from, it keeps them from going full blown, like postulated monster. Yeah. And after a whole bunch of carnage Rose, uh, AKA uh, cherry, she ends up like leading a small pack of survivors off into like an oasis, you know, <laughs> against the sea. And they sort of try to live their life out, you know, in, in almost a, a Mad Max kind of uh, post-apocalypse. And that's sort of how the movie ends. Am I missing any part of how no, it ends? No, I, I think you nailed that one. So where would it go from there? Do you have any ideas, Tim, on where it could go from there? I mean, I think it would go directly into Mad Max the Road Warrior. Sure. <laughs> Just with more goop. I've always been surprised... And I know that I know that Grindhouse was a was a heartfelt concept that didn't really kill at the box office, but I do feel like over the years it's gained a following. I mean, we could name two films, well technically three, but two films that were fake trailers that became movies, most recently Thanksgiving and Machete. 
which also birthed Machete Kills. Which is such a shame because I feel like it was such a great idea for them to do this double feature and like all the directors doing the fake trailers in between. And it really felt more like event viewing as opposed to just like, I'm going to go catch a flick at the, the movie theater. But I, it really doesn't work as much as the Friday night, everybody's rushing out to a theater at seven o'clock after dinner to go see the Grindhouse double feature. It almost exists entirely of, no, this is the movie you turn on as like the cult midnight showings as its primary release. Yeah, I agree. And as far as where it could go, I mean, I've thought about that a few times over the years, because anytime I watch the movie, it's like, I kind of do want to see a sequel. I mean, that's why it's on the list. And I always imagined that like, if you made it right now, you know, regardless of what year you made it in, you just fast forward that many years. So whatever age Rose McGowan is, it's fine. It doesn't matter. So if you picked it up from however many years have passed and you look at maybe the DC gas, which in the film, its code name is Project Terror, which is where Planet Terror comes from. If it's spread, you figure maybe it could like mutate not just people, the majority of the earth's ecosystem. So if you have like cherry living in her life, you know, with this little commune in this oasis that they've built, if you kind of write into the story that she was able to give birth to several children who inherited her immunity to the gas and they found some survivors that also were immune and they were able to maybe populate over the last 20 years, a a small group of people. If your threat is become that you have this gas, the remnants of it, mutating not only the people that are going to be the threat that attack them, the zombies, but you also have zombified animals and it also infects the plant life. If you establish that like rainwater maybe is still pure because it's dropping from the sky, they would be able to kind of secure the sanctuary. And I thought a cool concept would be, what if their group is growing And they're trying to come up with a way to kind of clear and secure new little spots to create new encampments, to try and like repopulate the earth. And I'm no script writer, but I thought it would be kind of cool if you had a couple of science minded people that have been able to like isolate some proteins from the blood of the people that are immune. They would have been able to inject that into other people. So you're creating a bigger and bigger amount of people that are immune, which would then propel your story because it would give you a reason to have more and more people. And what if they were coming up with ways of trying to sort of um, filter and inject and, and clear parts of the ecosystem with the proteins isolated from their blood. So they're almost making like a weed killer that they could try to clear out areas. And that led me to think, what if their end goal is to actually create essentially like grenades, but bigger versions of these that they could actually like drop and blow up and clear an area where you'd be killing that bacteria and kind of reseeding it from anew. And that's why I would title it Planet Terror Cherry Bomb. And that would be the, you know, you've got the, the constant threats from like marauders and people that are zombified and all of the other stuff that I already mentioned that would be tainted. They would live a very immediate life of constantly trying to keep the threat back. 
I don't know if it's the best idea, but I thought it was like a decent idea for a sequel. I'd watch it. Does any of that sound yeah, like viable I mean, to you I mean, I or is it too same, stupid? No, I think that's kind of the same vein of the reason that people love like the Mad Max series so much is I want to see the the world that happens in the post-apocalypse, but also the survivors and what exactly are they doing about well, in their case, trying to just exist in it, this trying to fix it to an extent or at least make it livable. Uh, I mean, they could be doing like reverse fracking of pumping yeah. this stuff deep down into the uh, the ground soil. So this way it's anything growing new is going to be growing clean. Exactly. Um, so but I thought it would be like a pretty cool visual, you know, to see like, because we all know that threats in movies, there's different levels to how smart that threat is. So if you had like, aviation based you know like like birds that were that were like tainted with this shit they would want to be like taking out the water supply you know where they're like trying to hold this rainwater and process it and use it so you'd be dealing with like base level stuff like animal based intellect but then you also would have like it's almost a zombie land thing when they break down like the different levels of zombies you know the intellect level when you're dealing with like the big bads and you'd get like people that are mean spirited people to begin with, but they're actually infected. Now you've got a smarter, faster, more agile thing, you know, that that can plot against you. So you're trying to hold that back. I mean, it's weird how almost every movie like this, you have to lean away from like the walking dead zombie apocalypse vibe. Like it's so easy to fall into that as a sequel idea, I was really trying to think of something that would feel different than that. And that's why I came up with that concept. But, but I don't know. Rodriguez seems to uh, throw a lot of wild cards out there. I wouldn't be surprised if, if he puts out a huge hit in the next couple of years, it's like surprise me and, and follow it up with, with a planet terror sequel, you know, something totally off the cuff. Like yeah. that. I've always liked that it felt like he was never doing movies because he was just trying to do like what's going to make the most money or what's going to be the he yeah. wasn't a journeyman director of just like oh yeah I'll just take on any job and just do it he he could but everything right. was very specifically him like I can look at any of his filmography and be like oh yeah this has Robert Rodriguez all over it um that I I really wish that he would go back and do something with Planet Terror, but I just want to see what he's going to do next anyway. Yeah. I've always really respected him as a as the genuine article. You know, he I don't like or or love, I guess, or even like sometimes everything that he does. But I agree with you. Robert Rodriguez seems to be someone that won't really bend. He does what he wants to do. He'll make spy kids, even though he knows that Mike Falsigno and a bunch of other fans of his, you know, more gritty stuff aren't going to flip out and be thrilled that you're making spy kid movies, but he's making them because he I wants still to like the spy kid movies, um, which is fine. You're allowed to, they're, they're watchable. They're just, I, didn't really grow up on them. I got showed um, them when I was like 28 and I was like, okay, I can dig it. <laughs> um, my point is Rodriguez always entertains me. He, yeah. I've watched him make huevos rancheros in in his his house, and it's entertaining to watch him make breakfast. He's just a really fun guy <laughs> and very down to earth. So Tim, we're gonna we're gonna do something that we're really good at. We're gonna talk about a John Carpenter movie while still never doing a deep dive John Carpenter episode. <laughs> I'm sure 
The listeners are loving that because we're probably never going to do a John Carpenter episode. Our podcast could be subtitled essentially a John Carpenter episode. And what <laughs> movie is that, Tim? Uh, this would be In the Mouth of Madness from 1994. You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. His fans put him on the bestsellers list. Kane disappeared two months ago without a trace. Kane writing has been known to have an effect on his readers. Now, his novel is driving people insane. Ah! And only one man can stop him. It's a setup. It's for real. This is not reality. John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. I'd say probably his last great film. You didn't like Ghosts of Mars? That was a fun movie. <laughs> I don't think it's on the same level of In the Mouth of Madness. It's Jason Statham with hair. Um, <laughs> the effects budget needed for that. So In the Mouth of Madness, I know we both mutually love this film. Yes. This is probably one of his wackier in terms of plot lines, I would say. Just because it gets even beyond the the horror or the supernatural or the uh, creature stuff of his other movies and starts getting into this weird art versus life versus art deal of yeah. um, the whole thing is a author, horror author, Sutter Kane disappears. Do you read Sutter Kane? And Sam Neill plays John Trent. He's the insurance investigator who is sent out to go find him and see what happened. Uh, that way they can, for the big release of his book and all this other stuff that's going on. And as he gets more into what's going on, he realizes that there's a lot more at play here and a lot more sinister, creepy things happening that are starting to invade his day-to-day -day life. So where does this movie end, Mike? Well, I <laughs> this film, I think, is one of Carpenter's most underrated in, in terms of when I see list rankings of his movies. Um, he's biting off a lot in this one. And it ends in, in a very bleak way where the hero, Sam Neill, doesn't succeed. And we're sort of left with this vibe that Sutter Kane's madness and his books and the, the psychosis that washes over anyone that reads them, uh, it's going to spread. You know, the, the hero does not thwart the villain in this, which really screams for a sequel. Yeah. So... I always liked the kind of meta aspect of In the Mouth of Madness of the book and then uh, with John Trent realizing that he has no agency because all of his actions are already part of Sutter Kane's book and all of this is inevitable that's going to happen. I want to take that meta aspect and push it to 11 open a sequel with John Carpenter doing a retrospective on making In the Mouth of Madness. Oh, that'd be so good, dude. And have the movie following like this, maybe like a PA or following somebody who's working on set that's involved in the new sequel to In the Mouth of Madness that's going to be like, oh, the new hype of all of these sequels to movies that it's been like 30 years, but we're going to come back and do a <laughs> sequel. And then as they're going and working on this and finding out, I want him to start uncovering and realizing that like, oh, wait, like the the writer of this, this is actually a transcript. Sutter Kane is real. This is a leftover transcript from Sutter Kane that is now being made into the sequel movie. And they're eventually going to 
recreate or like create the problem that John Carpenter made within the Mouth of Madness and have the movie ending with the premiere of this sequel playing of everybody <laughs> going in to watch this in Hollywood and the kid like banging on the doors outside the theater trying to get in as the movie starts up while yeah, see, you're sitting in the theater watching this movie. Tim, I think that's brilliant. And early on, on the intro to this show, I had mentioned that we each have ideas. Some of us might have ideas, you know, both for one movie. Others might lean one or the other. I had one concept for In the Mouth of Madness, and it was the fact that when I looked at what was going on with Halloween, and I was thinking about how much the legion of John Carpenter fans want him to come back and come back big. My idea was, what if you did an In the Mouth of Madness sequel that was John Carpenter being pulled back in to make a sequel (laughs) to In the Mouth of Madness because the pitch people were like, listen, John, this was one of your movies that didn't get the love really when it came out, but look at what's happened since 94. People love this film and they're dying for you to like a return to form. And I had that idea. That was my pitch idea that I was going to tell you and the listeners. But I didn't have that next piece where you brought in the whole Sutter Kane and being a real writer. That's a great way to solidify that that kernel idea that we both had. It's an awesome like yeah. your trajectory is the one to take. And I think if if you were able to make that film and also convince a whole bunch of great actors to take their roles in the film as themselves, that would be fucking amazing. It's yeah. If someone wants to nitpick us, it's in some ways a little similar to new nightmare from Wes Craven, but it isn't, it's the same idea of of people playing themselves. But other than that, I think it's, it takes the whole Lovecraftian angle because anyone that knows Lovecraft even a little bit knows that a Carpenter loves him and B this is Carpenter's love letter to, to Lovecraft. I mean, at the mountains of madness in the mouth of madness, it's similar. Um, Sam Neill and Julie Carmen, they travel to a town called Hobbs end, which is not a Lovecraft town, but it's in the East coast. And it sounds like a Lovecraft town. It's all tentacles and slime. Um, but man, you know, I want Carpenter to come back so bad, Tim, before he can't direct anymore. Yeah. And that shitty reality crime show thing that they pitched as a John Carpenter production w- was embarrassing. I can't even remember the name of it. Oh, like yeah. Neighborhoods of Death or something. Um, do you know he only directed the last segment and their reenactments of real crimes? And Carpenter directed that segment via Zoom. So he didn't even show up in person to direct the segment. It's a really tepid swan song if that's the last thing that has John Carpenter's name above it. I mean, like, if that's I don't want him to case, go out I would like rather that. remember the last thing being, like, what, Cigarette Burns from Masters of Horror? Yeah, like, I think I'll the, ward, the, the ward might have yeah, been t- after that. The ward was um, after that, but, like... Yeah. So, I mean, even if you want to punch this up further and start the movie as like a talking head documentary with this, with John Carpenter, and then keep it as the documentary style of following the filming and the work on this, and then twist it in the last like fifth of the movie, where then it turns into a normal movie shooting instead of um, documentary style. Which might be similar to a movie that you and I 
desperately wanted to see so that we could talk about it for a year in fear is late night with the devil. Yeah. We both really, any listener out there, we tried both of us on our own tried to find a way to watch this movie, but you can't even find a trailer. They are keeping this shit so far under wraps. Um, maybe by now, by the time this airs, maybe there'll be a trailer released, but it's this movie called late night with the devil. I think it's like a 1970s, like talk show, like a yeah. Johnny Carson is the setup. Um, and it stars that actor that uh, Tim David might know the name of. What is it? David Desmalchian? Yeah, he was in Prisoners. He's the guy who shoots himself in Prisoners, and he was one of he, the Joker's henchmen guys, yeah, uh, he disciples. Was in, uh, the Suicide Squad. He was Polka yeah, Dot the Polka Man. Dot he dude. was in the new movie, The Boogeyman. He actually, he wrote a comic series called Count Crowley um, about a horror host who takes over for the old horror host and finds out that they're having to fight actual monsters. Um, but it's apparently in real life. He is a huge devoted horror fan. Oh yeah. He hosted the shutter. Um, I think it was the shutter awards or the chainsaw awards or something oh, cool. for Fingoria. Um, but yeah, it's his stuff is a blast. So yeah, if anyone listening gets a chance to track down late night with the devil, uh, Tim and I have heard nothing but great things, um, which doesn't always mean anything, but it really is like sweeping the audiences at every festival it plays at as like the next big, great, like independent horror movie. So uh, keep an eye out for that. I can't wait till it comes out. But that leads us into another movie that I don't know. I feel like it was unfairly compared and written off as like an alien ripoff, which yeah. I don't think is fair. And what movie is that? This is 2017's Life. For hundreds of millions of years, Mars has been extinct. But somehow, this creature has survived. What caused the extinction? On March 24th... We're out of orbit. It's controlling the ship. Finding life could be the end of ours. We'll hit the atmosphere in 39 minutes. A film that I was pleasantly surprised the entire time watching it um, because it does all of the things I love of, hey, what if we do some stunt casting or what if we do some things with this that will anger audiences, but then leave them like on their back foot the rest of the film of I don't know what's going to happen now. Exactly. This was directed by Daniel Espinoza. And as Tim just sort of laid out for you guys, it's quite a simple setup. I mean, you've got a six-member crew on an international space station, and they're supposed to be studying samples from Mars, and um, they're trying to prove that there could be extraterrestrial life. And of course, uh, as all good peril-in-space movies go, they uh, they pick up this little tiny organism, mm-hmm. and they're checking it out, and they're making some crazy uh revelations about it like it's uh i think if my memory is correct they talk about how it's only muscle and brain tissue like there really is no other like wasted tissue it's just this this like mental strength based thing <laughs> and it ends up being nicknamed calvin yep uh due to an elementary school because they're having like they're talking back and forth to earth and and the astronauts are like keeping the kids entertained and and the kids are throwing some ideas out and they name this little creature Calvin. But Calvin turns deadly 
very, very quickly. Yeah, so we end up getting treated to the rest of the film as this ever-evolving alien life form that starts from this little bit that starts getting bigger and bigger and more advanced. And now all of a sudden it has like appendages that are not just like these weird amorphous things. And now all of a sudden it's able to navigate around quickly by itself. And I think it turns into this really cool alien movie. Yeah. That ends up being this tight little thriller just because it's all confined to they're stuck on this space station with a dwindling crew of this thing going around. It's, it sounds like it would be alien, but right. it's very different from it's alien, so I different. think. Yeah. And I know it sounds sort of cliche to call a film lean and mean, but it is. It it's it's the kind of movie that I love when I have a client that I know has good taste that's getting tattooed and they say they want to watch something like intense. And if I ask them, have you seen life? And all they say is Oh, that's that like space movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, right? And I'm like, right, you haven't seen it? And they're like, no. If I put it on, there's no phone play. They're glued to the screen for the whole movie because it really just, it takes off. And yeah, it borrows some things from some other movies, but it it creates its own identity for the movie. And I think the performances are really good. That kill, the kill Tim was talking about that, that keeps you on your toes um, I know we, we established that there'd be spoilers. I'm still not going to say the person's name, but one of your lead people gets killed pretty fucking quick. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Now I don't know if like other people are going to live or die. Yeah. And that's awesome. And I think Rebecca Ferguson, who is so good in Dune and um, she plays Rose the Hat in uh, in Doctor Sleep. I think she is solid as all hell. And uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's great as usual in Ryan Reynolds brings everything you want from Ryan Reynolds. And the supporting cast is really good, too. I mean, it is pretty much six people for the whole movie. So, yeah. so Mike, where does your sequel, if they had one? Because well, actually, where does this movie end? Um, this we movie, probably should have told them about the, <laughs> the yeah, ending. This one movie of my ends favorite with, endings. Uh, it's one of your favorites? Oh, yeah. That's good because I will die on this hill. I think it is a beautiful twist ending. It got me 1000%. It's a gut punch. It's really, really good. You think that Jake Gyllenhaal is sacrificing himself for one of the other characters to survive. And in this really beautifully, tightly edited way, they they subvert that. And in the very end, uh, a couple of fishermen go and open the escape pod that's been trapped. uh, It's like floating in the ocean. And you think it's going to be the girl that got away. And it's actually Jake Gyllenhaal who is trapped with Calvin in it. So they open up and unleash Calvin on planet earth. Everything that you thought happened flipped the other way around. It's so fucking good. I loved it. That like the moment that sheer terror of realizing like, Nope, I actually just launched the person I was trying to save and sacrifice myself for, launched them off into the cold of space where they're just going to die by themselves. Slowly die. A horrible. And I just unleashed this thing on Earth now. Um, I think so yeah, it's a, it's a great ending. This is um, the, the sequel would be a great start to a kaiju film. This is true. And that's where my mind went. Uh, people that are up on film that like follow shit. 
they might remember that when Life came out, which was 2017, for some reason, they inexplicably, not the filmmaker, but whoever cut the trailer, apparently there was footage of (laughs) Spider-Man 3 in it. It was such a dumb thing. I I still don't understand how or why. Stock footage of like a crowd or something. And everyone's like, that's the crowd from Spider-Man 3. So that led some hawk-eyed, you know, internet uh, viewers to be like, Oh my God, this is the symbiote that becomes Venom. This is a prequel to Venom. And that was actually, at the time, it was an exciting thought, you know, if they were going to like run with that and craft a new Venom. I'm happy that that wasn't it. But Tim and I's pitches might be pretty similar. I would have loved if this was a prequel to Venom and they just decided to do Venom as this like hard horror sci-fi film. Exactly. um, Instead of like a traditional superhero or anti-hero type thing. Um, but alas, instead we just got life. Yeah. And again, my pitch is not really like super mind blowing. I just think it's a logical progression to what happens. I thought it would be pretty cool if Calvin kills everyone there, you know, the, the fisherman and, uh, Joe and Hall. And what if he disappeared into the sea? Because the sea is sort of like space in terms of it being vast. And if he were in the sea, and everyone knew about this, you would then have like U.S. government kind of getting all the world governments to unite in an attempt to kill this thing at sea before it becomes so big that they can't fucking handle it. And I thought you could really craft a movie that kind of had the tension of life of the first film. You could create that on the water where you've got a bunch of, of different governments sending their best people out and they're tracking this thing as it's like devouring and growing and they're trying to come up with ways to dispatch it. And I think if you crafted the film so that the the meat of the middle of it was maybe one or two different ideas, you had your A game and then your B backup plan and then your C plan. And let's say that all of those things failed. And they all failed in a very uh, suspenseful way and a real downer, bleak, like son of a bitch, it failed. Like we didn't get it again. And I thought the whole thing could have a big action sequence of Calvin like crossing paths with a bunch of giant whales. And once he like engulfs those and starts absorbing those whales, everyone sort of knows that we're fucked. And then he comes on to land as this massive kaiju-sized creature, and then we could sort of get, like, what everyone wants that loves giant monsters and really get a unified military strike trying to take this thing down and weighing out how much damage are we creating to our people by trying to take it out versus how much damage is Calvin create, you know, impacting on people. And you would have, like, I think a really tense... American kaiju, which would be very cool. He, um, it's a little run of the mill, but that's like my thought on he where comes you could out take on land in South America and encounters the blob, blob. Oh who is now at max capacity. <laughs> and then you're like, oh my Did, God, which one do I root for? I mean, the blob is technically Earth. Yeah. <laughs> Help well, us. does Ken, does Ken Watanabe pop in and say, let them fight? <laughs> does that happen? I um, mean, yeah. What I was thinking is yes, if you've me. already decided to go the route of we've accepted extraterrestrial life, there's aliens in this movie in life, let's go harder into the sci-fi in a sequel 
And instead of having it be very like, I'm thinking like a, like a Godzilla minus one or something like that of people trying to combat this thing, have it that the person in the other escape pod is continuing to go hurtling through space and is intercepted by another ship that is looking for Kelvin. Oh, that's not a bad idea at all. Of it escaped containment from wherever they keep it, and now they're looking for it, so now we're introducing other alien life forms. She's now on that ship. They come down to Earth to try to contain it, and they find that Earth is already being kind of sucked in or kind of... uh, absorbed and turned into a calvinized version from there so it's kind of a oh nope earth is already pretty much at a loss that's really cool so the bleak ending we get from the last one it's oh we're gonna go down and save earth can't save earth earth is already gone and there's really no rules like if you're dealing with alien life forms people that want to nitpick life they could get super scientific with it and maybe you know level some things of like this creature probably couldn't exist on Mars. Like it's so close to earth. This would be something that would be more of a deep space thing, but we don't know if it originated there. Um, What if Calvin, as it grows to a certain capacity has to shed some of this, these cells. So you could almost get this concept of like a giant Kaiju size Calvin with all these little droplets dropping off him that are turning into these like smaller scale uh, threats, you know, that could be oh, fought like in more the, of a ground in battle. Cloverfield, when the other yeah. ones pop off. Yeah, like the little those fleas that are yeah. in Cloverfield, kind of a version of that. But yeah, it would be fun. I would so be down to see a life sequel. Would it be called Afterlife? That's the question. Oh, I think we have already gotten to the end of our of our fun little rant on on possible sequels. And this next film is something that, as much as Tim and I try not to repeat titles i do think this young lady has popped up in one of our halloween episodes and she's probably popped up in one other episode and we haven't really gone too deep into it but it's the autopsy of jane doe what's that for make sure he's dead sheriff what happened no id no fingerprints in the system for now, she's a Jane Doe. He needs my help right now. 11 o'clock, I'm all yours. Subject is in her mid to late 20s. Hair brown. Eyes gray. What happened to you? First, they bound her. Then they ripped out her tongue, poisoned her. Paralyzed her, forced her to swallow the cloth. What is that? And we got to talk about this film for a second, and then then we'll get into possible sequel territory. So. You want to take it away? Yeah, so if you've listened to our previous episodes, you probably have already heard about Autopsy of Jane Doe. But yeah, so it's the father and son coroners played by Brian Cox, Tommy, and Emile Hirsch, Austin. And they kill it. They're awesome together. It's this great kind of like bottle episode of a movie of 
just these very minimal characters. It's mostly just the father and son interacting um, as they're trying to investigate this corpse that was brought to them by the police department that was found at the scene of a crime. And from a bunch of people that have been killed. It's like a bunch of dead people in a house and then this lady in the basement. And there's no information on this Jane Doe. So as they're performing the autopsy and they're looking into the death and seeing what's going on, all of these supernatural things start happening in this, uh, their corner's office uh, down in the basement of their building. And then ultimately what ends up happening, um, unfortunately, is the movie leaves off with only the corpse remains as it gets found by the police of everyone at the coroner's office is no longer with us. And now the body is getting loaded back into a, uh, an ambulance or a vehicle and it's being brought over to another County and it's just, just get it out of here. Yeah. I you would imagine it my it's, county. Pro- it's probably going to another corner is what we're imagining. Yeah. Um, but every time we talk about this movie, uh, Tim and I gush about the, well-written procedural element, the mystery, how you become a detective with um, Emil Hirsch and Brian Cox. And it's just very measured and it's creepy and eerie, but we never ever give away the spoiler. And now we kind of can. So Tim, the end result is, is what, what is the deal with Jane Doe? Why does she look so perfect? Ah, uh, that it is a, essentially a, a body of a witch from the trials of, this satanic thing with all of the spells carved inside of her skin on the the wrong side of the skin and she kind yeah, of like internally and, and her lungs yeah. are burned but her skin isn't and all and that she stuff. restores different injuries she has on her body by inflicting them on those around her as she reconstitutes herself I think at one point, Brian Cox's character, maybe it's Emil Hirsch, but I think it's Brian Cox. I think at one point he he hypothesizes that, uh, you know, maybe maybe all this shit they did to her, like created, like made her the witch that she wasn't initially. Yeah. That's sort of like just sort of thrown out there. Did you have a, uh, a, a, a pre thought out pitch? For a sequel, or do you want to like kind of piggyback off of what I've I'll thought piggyback, of? I'll piggyback off yours. Oh yeah, okay. Well, for those that know the tone of the film, um, imagine the film opening exactly on the last shot, and the last shot is her toes in the back of this ambulance with them driving off, and I just picture this ambulance driving uh, Jane down the road, and. They abruptly hit the brakes because in the middle of the road, there's a a car accident. There's a car that's like slammed into a tree and you can see that there's a person leaning over the, the, the front dash and they look like they're bloodied up. And so, you know, the drivers have a super quick conversation. It's very fast kinetic opening scene. And one driver hops out of the ambulance and he, and he runs over to the victim he sees he's slumped over. He he pulls the guy back. And as he's pulling this guy back, it's a girl. And she just stabs him right in the eye with like a freaking ice pick. Just like, just drops this dude. And the other driver sees this and immediately goes to grab uh, like the radio to call in. But all of a sudden from out of the bushes, another person pops up, grabs the guy by the hair, slits his throat. He's spraying blood all over the place. A bunch of blood lands in the back and you just see it like hit the covered body of Jane Doe. And 
the two guys come, the, the girl and the guy come running around. They throw the dude's body out. They both hop in and they just peel out down the road. And as they're peeling out down the road, I envision let the sunshine in play in the background. Yeah. And I, I envision the credits rolling up from the bottom. So it's just rolling up into the screen. It just says Jane Doe Renaissance. And then the movie starts. And my pitch <laughs> is that the story deals with a witch cult that is set on transferring Jane, who they consider the original witch, into a living body as she's like hundreds of years old. And they, they want they want to bring order back and bring witches back into power. And the dead family from the beginning, we find out um, that they were actually defectors who were trying to thwart this resurrection and trying to kill her and stop this. And of course they failed. So I don't really have the whole movie worked out, but I thought that maybe they do establish the sheriff from the beginning of the first film. He was pretty tight with Brian Cox's character and he seemed to like Emil Hirsch. So I thought maybe the trajectory of, of the sequel could be the sheriff from the first film kind of pulling a procedural, you know, to try and track down this cult and like avenge the death of his friends and, and try to stop this. Um, or maybe there's like an undercover like Christian who is like in that cult and we don't know that for a while. I mean, the original movie was pretty good at doling out a bunch of suspense and then giving you answers when you couldn't take it anymore. So I would imagine this film sequel, it should have like a good, but, but believable twist, like where it just changes the narrative a little. And I thought maybe that would be cool that like somebody was in the cult that isn't actually a bad person. They're, they're trying to thwart this. I don't know. I don't see how much further you can go with a concept, but why wouldn't there be some people that are in the know that have, um, you know, a nefarious like like intent that know about Jane and what she's capable yeah. of. It just seems like that would be a logical place to go from there. Well, plus um, I would think if there's people that are around that are still this like the cult of the witch kind of deal that they're aware of this generation, generation, generations ago thing that maybe there are the witch finders descendants down and down and down also still around or involved with this then and this tim is why we're bouncing these ideas off each other because your idea of of a lineage of witch finders makes a hell of a lot more sense thematically than my idea of oh some christian guy is like embedded in in there <laughs> I, I would imagine he'd be part of some you know catholic group of of, of you know undercover people but yeah. um but no, I like the idea of why not make it – you're actually making the witch hunters who are normally presented as the nutcases, they actually yeah. have a genuine real threat that they're fighting for good. So that would be a cool twist right there. Yeah. Or it's the the one defector from there is trying to alert the, the witch finders, and it's a case of uh, they were aware that their ancestors were not actually hunting witches – so now it's trying to convince the witch finders of no witches are real. Um, <laughs> yeah. This is a real scenario now. But I do feel like the growing group of people that seem to really dig this movie would probably all be very happy to see Jane Doe come back into the picture. Because I, I would like another movie for sure. Yeah, I agree. And now 
your quote for the week. Cold turkey. You have got to be kidding. Promise me, Chucky. No more killing. No. Chucky. No. No, no. No more killing. No, we can't no, do it anymore. No, we have times. a future no, to think no, of. No, we no, have a no. child. Fine. All right already. I promise. Thank you, doll baby. You're a sweetheart. So, my friend, I think that was a very entertaining way to open up 2024. Yeah. Open up and 2024 I'm glad, I'm glad with new ideas. Yeah. So definitely anybody out there that is familiar with any of these movies and you always wondered, like, what would another one look like? I would love to hear your thoughts and ideas on where some of these might go or where some other movies might have gone. Um, or just your thoughts on, would you watch any of these sequels that we mentioned today? Yeah. And also, free like, on when, streaming. when we post about this episode on, like, our Instagram and stuff... That's the place. Like when you see that that icon for this episode, if you guys have some ideas or comments on what we already put, but especially for other movies, feel free to send us an actual message through there or even just comment on it. Because if we end up doing um, sequels that never were like a second you know, edition, we will be calling a bunch of information from the listeners because we want to make these episodes tailored to you guys. So um that's all I got to say on that. And so where would they find that Instagram? And, uh... <laughs> uh, they would find us at the old uh, Instagram of don't open this podcast with no apostrophe. They can find you directly on Instagram at Mr. Time. They can find me directly at Fal Art. And then there's our X, which is don't open this pod. Mm-hmm. And our Letterboxed, uh, which, which is... is don't open this podcast. Yep. Correct. Are we missing one? What's our email? Our email is don't open this podcast at gmail.com and our Facebook is don't open this podcast. And I know we thanked all of you in our, our massive year in fear episode for supporting us all year long, but we genuinely mean it. And if you would just be kind enough to share us with your friends that like horror and sci-fi and to subscribe and maybe plug us here and there, you know, and throw us in your stories we we don't charge a penny and we're going to try to never do that so um you know if you could help us out that's that's how we spread yeah so treat us you. like your own sutter cane ask your friends do you listen to don't open this podcast yeah so tim that wraps up episode 46 so catch us next time we're back to our normal recordings uh the second and fourth monday of the month so we'll see you in february for that special valentine's day episode it's gonna have a lot of heart <laughs> Stop it! <laughs>